Somebody tell me what you know about Amos. Shepherd, perhaps. He had a friend named Andy. <laughs> right? Oh, that's my granddaddy used to watch Amos and Andy. Somebody told me in the four o'clock, you didn't watch Amos and Andy, you listened to Amos and Andy. But my granddad, when we got a VHS, actually it was a beta. Anybody remember beta? We got him a beta video recorder and he had to get some Amos and Andy. So for Christmas, we traveled from Dyersburg, you had to travel all the way to Memphis or Nashville to get a Cracker Barrel. And they had Amos and Andy stuff and molasses. So that was his Christmas gift every year, Amos and Andy and molasses. So Amos, we know, I got off track pretty quick there, didn't I? Amos is a shepherd, maybe. Anything else? And a tender of sycamore, right. That comes a little bit later. So some people think he was a farmer. Because of that, they'll mention that, that he was a farmer. Here's what we, we think we know about Amos. Here's an interesting thing. Amos, we don't hear of Amos anywhere else but the book that has his name. Okay? And so we know some things about him because of what he says in here or what is said about him. It, it does say the word kind of shepherd, but it means something a little different than... Um, when I say shepherd, some of you probably just imagine the guy with the crook, you know, with a few sheep sitting around. But the word is actually used for one who breeds sheep or one who manages the livestock. And so uh, if somebody had a large animal population livestock, they would have managers that would come in and they would take care of it. And so he was that. Some people think the sycamore tree thing was that part of his job was making sure he got food and secured things for the animals. And that was part of it somehow. And so... We're not real sure. We know he did something with agriculture or livestock, but here's the important thing about that. He was not a priest or a preacher or any kind of religious leader. And yet, one of the books in the Bible is all about what he said. And so it's interesting, and we'll talk about this in a minute. I joked with the earlier group. We, I, my, the talk tonight's only got eight points. That's all we've got to cover, all right? And so, one of them we'll talk about is that God uses this ordinary guy to do amazing things. Now, look at Amos chapter 1. We're going to look at the first two chapters tonight. We're not going to read every word, but we're going to read a lot of them, okay? This is the words of Amos. By the way, his name means burden bearer. And so, the idea is that he was bearing this burden talking to people, all right? who was one of the sheep breeders from Tekoa. And this is what he saw regarding Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay, a couple of things there. Do you know the name Uzziah from anywhere else in Scripture? Isaiah, right? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So, if he, as in Amos prophesied during Uzziah's reign, then you can be pretty sure it was before Isaiah. In fact, there are four prophets that were in the 700s B.C., and Amos is the first of those. He was from Judah. He was from the southern kingdom. If you remember biblical history, that at this time, Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and he was from the southern kingdom. Most people think his businesses, or most scholars think that his business, his breeding, his agricultural stuff, led him to go into the north a lot. And what's interesting is, this book is written to the northern part of Israel, 
even though he's from the south. And so Uzziah's in the south, and Uzziah was an okay king. Um, by this time, all the kings were getting not as good as they could be, but Uzziah was okay. But in the north, he had Jeroboam, and Jeroboam was not a great king. But what was interesting is both the northern and southern kingdoms were enjoying a great time of peace. In fact, they had had years of peace where nobody had attacked them. Their economy had grown. People were comfortable in their living. Even when their economy dipped or they had a bad farm year. I mean, you have to realize economies back then were different than ours. It was fully based on agriculture and weather and that kind of thing. Even if they had kind of a little bit of a down year, they were able to survive it. And they were still wealthier than most countries around them. They had political kind of stability as much as they would in any kind of error during this couple of hundred years. And people were generally comfortable and doing pretty well. Church attendance was up. People were going to the synagogues and to the places of worship more than they had been. But the moral state of the country, both north and south, was on a decline. So even though they seem to be doing better in all outward appearances, internally the country was going down a path it didn't need to go. Does that sound familiar at all? In fact, there are people that have said that the book of Amos could be written to modern America. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, but one of the things that he does, one of my favorite lines in Scripture, just because of the boldness of it, is he calls out some of the women who lived in that area and calls them the fat cows of Bashan. Now, my guess is if I got up on Sunday morning and said, all of you women of First Baptist Goodlettsville are the fat cows of Bashan, I said, if I said that, not that I did say that, I would get some phone calls, right? Yeah, I'm getting some looks now. I'm not getting get phone calls. Right? I mean, he was bold. He said, listen. But his point was, you're doing well, but you've lost what's important. And so when it tells us that it's the days King Uzziah and Jeroboam, it's setting us in that time frame. But there's another little interesting fact there, right? It says it's two years before the earthquake. Okay? Now, first of all, I think that's just a time frame thing. For people to go, oh, that's two years before the earthquake. That It wasn't an earthquake or one of many earthquakes. It was... The earthquake. That's how it's said in the scripture. And so it was an event they would have remembered. So for us, it would have been like, well, that was a couple of years or a couple of weeks before 9-11. Or that was, if you remember, that was the year before Kennedy was shot. Okay, I mean, you know, those kind of monumental events. I grew up in West Tennessee, and in West Tennessee, we learned all the time about the earthquake. The earthquake, the New Madrid Fault earthquake that caused... The Mississippi River to run backwards created Real Foot Lake that hunters and fishermen all love now. But we learned about the earthquake, okay? And it was in our distant past. The, the guess is that this was written to people that would have remembered the earthquake just a couple of years ago or five years ago, not like a hundred years ago. Now, that's important for two reasons. One is it sets a date. But here's the other reason it's important. Verse 1 may or may not have been written by Amos. Okay? I am fairly confident that verses 3 and the rest of the book are written by Amos. 
But verses 1 and 2 may have been written by one of his followers. Or it could have been written by Amos after the earthquake. And what it says is, don't forget what Amos said before the earthquake happened. Because the message of Amos is, it is a death sentence to the northern kingdom. And the message is, God is going to destroy the northern kingdom. And the people of Israel would have seen the earthquake as God's judgment. And then would have said, don't forget, Amos told you it was coming. And in case you forgot, here's what he said. You understand what I'm saying? So all of verse 3 and following, we know for sure, was written, or was said, was preached before this earthquake. But verse 1 and 2 were written after it. It's kind of like, let me introduce you real quickly. Don't forget what Amos said. Amos could have written it. One of his followers could. It doesn't deny the fact that it is still God-inspired and God-breathed. Okay? And so you have this thing here that says that that's when it happened. This normal, everyday guy named Amos, just a sheep breeder, heard a message from the Lord. It is vital to understand when we read this book that he was an ordinary sheep breeder. He did not have theological education. He did not have super special Bible study knowledge. In fact, in Scripture, having a theological education is never a requirement to be used by God. Now, I don't think they're bad, mainly because... I have one, and I'm in the process of one, but it's not a requirement. The only requirement in the New Testament or the Old Testament to be used by God is that you have heard from God. And you proclaim faithfully what He says. That's it. Doesn't matter what degrees are on your wall, doesn't matter where you studied, where you trained, what you did, that's what He's called to do. I met yesterday with a guy named Jonathan Gray. Jonathan and I went to... to College together at Union. Jonathan is a scientist who has done research at St. Jude and Medtronic. Now, at St. Jude, he was doing cancer research at Medtronic. He was helping to develop a drug to ease back pain. All right? And no, I don't have his number, so he can't hook you up. All right? He's not working either one of those places now. He got laid off at both. At one place, it was because he was a little vocal about his faith, and they asked him to kind of tone it down and... He wouldn't do that. And the other place was they took out his whole division. Uh, they got some new management and the whole division was uh, reassigned. So Jonathan was without work for a while. Now, Jonathan is a scientist, smart guy, intelligent guy. I remember from Union, was a year younger than me, was always, you know, Dean's List, always that kind of thing. And Jonathan said, I didn't know what to do. And so I just started delivering pizzas. So he became a Papa John's delivery man. His wife was out of work. He was out of work. They were living in a house in Collierville. If you know anything about uh, Memphis area, that Collierville is a nice area. You don't get a house cheap there. And so he was delivering. And he said he was driving. He, the reason he had Papa John's is because he figured out that he could make more per hour doing Papa John's than just about anything else. So he gets a call from a guy at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and ask him to take on a project they're doing for this November. And he's, he said, my first thought was, but I'm not a preacher. 
And the guy said, we don't need a preacher. We need someone that's called by God to do this. And it reminded me of Amos. Amos was a breeder. He could have been a scientist that did research at St. Jude. He could have been a farmer in current culture. He could have been a factory worker. He could have been a teacher. He was a man that got a vision from the Lord and he followed through on it. This is what he says. It wasn't a pleasant vision, by the way. He said in verse 2, you think we're going through two chapters. We've got a long way to go, right? Verse 2, he said, The Lord roars from Zion and raises his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the summit of Carmel withers. All right? A couple of things there. When you say the Lord roars, what picture comes into your mind when you hear the word roar? A lion, right? That's good because that's what's intended here, all right? The actual phrase there means the lions roar before he pounces on prey. Okay? Now, who's it say is doing that? The Lord, right? The judgment is coming is what that means. Then it says, and he raises his voice. Does anybody have a different translation in your Bible? I'm using the Holman Christian. You may have a different word there. It said his thunders, right? He utters. Is that what you have or do you have? You have thunders, okay? The word there means makes a sound like thunder, okay? Rolling thunder. And here's the thing. We have to understand that thunder usually warns us of a coming storm, right? Usually if a storm's coming, you don't hear the thunder after the storm has started. You hear the thunder, see the lightning as it's off on its way, right? You with me? All right. And what this word envisions is hearing that thunderclap and you realize it's really close. You ever been in your house and you didn't know a storm was coming? I mean, maybe you saw, I mean, today we all got our phones out, I know, looking at weather. But you didn't know a storm was coming and you're sitting there and then all, maybe you see a real streak of lighting and then a huge thunderclap takes you off guard, but you realize something's about to happen. That's the picture here. Amos is telling you something's about to happen. It's coming. It's happening. Get ready for it. It's here. And this is what it's going to be. Starting verse 3. This is what he's going to do. He's going to... Remember, who's he talking to here? North or south? North. Israel, right? He's going to declare the judgment of God on all of the nations that surround Israel. Six of them to be exact. He's going to say, I will not relent from punishing Damascus, which was the capital of what was left of Syria up there. Because they threshed Gilead, I will send fire and it will consume Ben-Hadad. And then he says, I won't relent from punishing Gaza, which was south of Israel, for their crimes, for handing them over to Eden. Now, why in the world would he... Speaking to Israel, start talking about the other countries and the judgment that's going to come. Why would he do that? Because he was looking for amens. You know what I'm talking about? Be like if we were in Tennessee and all of the states around us were hostile to us. Okay? Let's imagine for a moment that we deported all Alabama fans back to Alabama. Okay? You might want to make a motion real quick, right? And it's just Tennessee, and everybody else hate us around it. And so he starts talking to us, and he goes, "You know how terrible those Alabama people are." 
Well, God's going to judge Nick Saban in Alabama. And all God's people said, amen, right? So what's going to happen when he starts doing that? What are we going to do? That's right. That's right. God's going to get him. Amen. He needs to. And so he starts. Here's what's interesting. He starts with those people most distant from God and most distant in relationship to Israel. Not necessarily distant geographically, but distant kind of family-wise. And so he starts up here with Damascus, and he says, you know they've been bad, and you know they've been doing some things they shouldn't do. God is going to judge them for that. Amen. Come on, preacher, let's go. Come on. And then he's going to go down to Gaza, and you know what Gaza's been doing, and he's been taking them away. And he says, God is not going to forget it. He will punish them down in the Philistine country for what they... Amen, preacher. You Come on, keep going, keep going. I know y'all don't know what that's like because that doesn't happen around here, but you kind of get the sense, right? And Tyre, don't forget Tyre. We're going to punish Tyre. They've been terrible. They handed whole communities over. They broke the treaty. They broke that treaty. You're right. Keep preaching. Keep preaching. And then they're going to go to Edom. He's getting a little closer to the families. He pursued his brother with a sword. He stifled compassion. His anger tore at them. He will not forget them. He will send fire. Amen, preacher. Keep preaching. He will punish the Ammonites. Ooh, now we're getting close. That's where Lot's kids. Remember Lot, right? Abraham and Lot, they separated. The Moabites and the Ammonites are Lot's kids. And we're the children of Abraham. We're the true descendants of God. They're the pretenders over there. That's right. God's going to get them. They ripped open the pregnant one of Gilead in order to enlarge their territory. I will set the fire to the walls of Rabbah. It will consume its citadels. They'll be shouting on the day of battle and a violent wind will come. And I won't forget Moab for the three fines for the four. They burn the lime, the bones of the king of Edom. I'll send fire against them. I'll cut off the judge. Cut them off and judge their land. The whole time, it's becoming like a mob scene. He's preaching to the north going, Listen, I'm going to get those in Damascus and those in Gaza and the Moabites and the Ammonites. And it's getting bigger and bigger. It's like a pep rally is going on. And then he hides it even more because, remember, who's he talking to? The north or the south? North. And he says to them, and not only that, God's going to judge all those people in Judah. People in the north are like, that's right. They're always telling us they're better than us. They're not better than us. They're always saying they've got the right place to worship. They ain't got the right place to worship. They're holier than that down there. They're not the real ones. And he says, listen, he's going to punish Judah. Chapter 2, verse 4. I will not relent from punishing Judah for three crimes, even four, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, have not kept his statutes. The lies of their ancestors followed and led them astray. I will send fire against Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. And he has got them in a frenzied pace. Like We like this prophet. I mean, he's telling us everything about everybody we already know. And God's going to punish them. We like him. Come on. Keep on. Preach it. Preach it. And then he says. And the Lord says. I won't relent from punishing you. In my imagination. Everybody goes quiet. Ooh, wait, 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 wait a minute. I heard this story one time at a conference. An African-American preacher told a story about one of his uh, fellow preachers that um, got in front of his congregation one day and said, knew that they needed to up the offerings a little bit. 
they were going to do what they needed to do as a church. They needed to up the offerings a little bit. And so he decided to approach it a little different way. And he said, how many of you out there? And he started to preach. How many of you out there love this church? Oh, we love this church, Pastor. Well, how many of you would like to see this church? You know, we've we got to do some things for the Lord. We want to start by crawling. How many of you want to see this church crawl? Let it crawl, church. Let it crawl. How many, how many of you want to see us get a little bit past the crawl? But you want to see us stand up. Get, get up and walk. Let it walk, preacher. Let it walk. Or how many of you want to see it not just walk, but you want to see it run? You want to see it go? You want to see us do big things for the Lord? Let it run, preacher. Let it run. He said, well, let me tell you what's going to have to happen if you want it to run. Is you're going to have to reach down. You're going to have to go deep inside your pockets. You're going to have to pull out some of what God has blessed you with. And you're going to have to put it in the plate and serve the Lord with your offerings. Let it crawl, preacher. Let it crawl. Right? We want all that stuff going on out there. But it gets to us. It's like, woo. But here's what I want you to notice. It is this common sheep breeder does a masterful job in preaching. Who's the longest set of crimes listed for? Israel. You see how he builds them up, gets them all. That's right. It's kind of like, you remember David, right? When he sinned with Bathsheba, had your eye killed, and Nathan comes to him and says, Hey, David, I heard about this guy, and he had all the sheep he wanted. But he saw his neighbor's sheep, and it was the only sheep he had. And he said, I've got to have that sheep. What do you think about it? He said, that man's terrible. And then Nathan says, you are the man. That's kind of what they do here, right? Amos says, look at all these countries, what they're doing. And then he says, the Lord says, I won't relent from punishing Israel for three crimes, even four. Because, and then he gives the reasons. They sell a righteous person for silver. And a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground and they block the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name. He doesn't cut any corners, does he? They stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral and they drink in the house of their God wine obtained through fines, through taking advantage of people. He says, and they forget. That I'm the one, this is the Lord speaking, that destroyed the Amorite as Israel came close. His height was like the cedars. He was sturdy as the oaks. Amorites were these people that were in the promised land that God took care of before the Israelites ever got there. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath, saying, I completely wiped them out. He says, they forget that I'm the one that brought them from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness in order to possess the land of the Amorites. I raised up some of your sons as prophets and some of your young men as Nazarites. Is this not the case, Israelites? But you, may the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets don't prophesy. So this is what I'm about to do. I'm about to crush you in your place as a wagon full of sheaves crushes grain. Escape will fail the swift. The strong one will not prevail by his strength. The brave will not save his life. The archer will not stand his ground. The one who is swift of foot will not save himself. And the one riding a horse will not save his life. Even the most courageous of the warriors will flee naked on that day. This is what he says. This is an important thing for us to think through. He tells us in those passages beforehand, and it's an important thing to understand, that every nation, every people will be held accountable for what they do. Right? I mean, 
Just because the people in Damascus don't know the Lord or don't know the law of Moses doesn't mean they won't be held accountable to the Lord. Just because the Assyrian people in Iran today that we talked about on Sunday that we're going to pray for and adopt as a people group to pray that the witness of Jesus Christ will come, just because they've never heard the name of Jesus doesn't mean they get a free pass on their sin. So everybody's accountable. But there's also this implication in here that the greater the revelation you have, the greater the accountability you have. The more you know, the more you ought to know. Ava turned six months today. And if you bend down to Ava, my six-month-old precious little girl, she will full-on grab your hair and pull. And Maddie thinks that's a little game. And so Maddie will stick her hair down. And for me, her grabbing my hair is not a big deal. Grabbing Maddie's hair is a big deal. Maddie, my three-year-old who thinks she's 28, all right? And so she, Ava will grab her hair and start to pull, and Maddie will be like, Dad, Dad, she grabbed my hair. I know, you stuck your hair down there. She's going to grab it. Well, Dad, Dad, she in trouble. She grabbed my hair. And I'll say to her, she's not in trouble. I untangle the hair. I know it hurt. I'm sorry. She doesn't know any better, all right? Now, if I walk downstairs to the playroom and Eli, my nine-and-a-half-year-old son, has Maddie's hair grabbing it and pulling it, that is a different story, right? Right? You're looking at me, right? That's a different story. Why? Because he knows better. With greater revelation comes greater responsibility. And what the Lord says to Israel is, you should know better. I'm the God that took out... The nations before you. I'm the God that rescued you from the Egyptians. I'm the God that protected you for 40 years in the wilderness. I'm the God that has sent prophet after prophet to you to tell you the right way to live. And even set aside Nazarites that were to live holy lives and be reminders of you. And all you did was disobey. You told the prophets not to speak and you cut the hair of the Nazarites. Remember the Nazarite vow? Then cut your hair. Didn't eat certain foods, didn't drink wine, and you made them do things they weren't intended to do. And because of that, he says, judgment is coming. One of the easiest things in the world is to see the sin in other people. You ever heard a sermon and you thought, boy, I sure wish so and so was here to hear that one? Or, I hope my husband is listening to this one. He needs to hear that. I can tell you that right now. We had a discussion this morning in the car, and I am glad that Brother Lyle is preaching on that right now because he needs to hear it. Anybody? Ever? No, surely not. No. That's easy, isn't it, to go, boy, somebody else needs it. That's what Israel was doing. Boy, they all need it over there. Somebody said the easiest ways to get amens is to go to a women's group and talk about how good husbands ought to be. All right? Amen. That's right, brother. It's hard to see in our own lives those places where we've walked away. And we will be held accountable, even as believers, for what we do with the great amount of revelation we have. 
There has never been a generation in the history of Christianity that has as much access to revelation and solid teaching of God's word than we do. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. There's a lot of good stuff. And we will be held accountable for it. We also see in here just an interesting little kind of side note that's stuck in there. And, and it gets paired in verse 7 with the man and his father having sexual relations with the same girl, which is kind of the epitome of the immorality that's going on. But it really means that everything he's listed above, from verse 6 to the end of verse 7, he says, whenever that's happening, he says, you are profaning my holy name. In other words, our rebellion against God's plans for relationships and taking care of people and doing what we ought to do erodes the holy reputation of God. I didn't say it erodes the holiness of God, but it can have an impact on the reputation of God. And as a result, it erodes our witness for the Lord. And what he says is they're doing all this stuff. It's worse than you can imagine. I mean, the stuff they're doing, they're trampling the heads of the poor on the dust of the ground. In other words, they won't let the poor even get a head up. They keep pushing them down. And they raise up and they push them down like, stay down. We're not going to help you. You help yourself. I got here by myself. You help yourself. They block the path of the needy. They don't let them have access to things. They, they sell people for the pair of sandals. They've got to have that new pair of sandals. So as a result, they don't care how they get it. They don't care who they run over. They don't care what happens. It's all about the sandals. He said, in doing that, you're profaning my holy reputation. And the last thing we see in here is this concept that what he really is upset about is that they are degrading and demoralizing and hurting the very people that God has vowed to fight for. The oppressed, the needy, the hurting, the fatherless, and the widow. Think about this. What he says to them is, you are fighting against the people I have sworn to fight for. So if you're fighting against the people that God is fighting for, then who are you fighting against? God, right? And I don't know a lot of things, but one thing I know for sure is, God is not an opponent I want to fight against. But he says, when you're doing all this stuff, you're going contrary to what's happened. He says, as a result, judgment is coming. And who's going to escape that judgment? Nobody, right? How do we know nobody, Miss Teresa? Right. Well, and in here, he's talking to Israelites, and he says, the swift aren't going to make it out. Well, if the swift aren't going to make it, guess who else isn't going to make it? The slow, right? I, I was never fast afoot, so that's not good for me. Then he says, the strong aren't going to make it. Well, if the strong aren't going to make it, guess who else isn't going to make it? The weak. And then he says, the courageous aren't going to make it. The brave. Well, the brave aren't going to make it. The cowards don't stand a chance. In fact, he says, every mighty warrior, how are they going to get out? Naked. naked. Like they came into the world, right, Cliff? Fleeing naked. The most courageous warriors are going to be left without anything, running for their lives in fear. 
here's what we need to think about. All right. We've got a long time to go through the book of Amos, actually about three or four more weeks. In the New Testament, who is Jesus always confronting? What group of people does he confront all the time? The Pharisees. Why? Because they're religious people that should have known better. In the Old Testament, he's getting on to his people who should have known better. Sometimes as a church, it's real easy, or churches, or believers, or conservative Christians, whatever phrase you want to use for whatever group you identify with, followers of Jesus Christ, it's real easy to look at the world around us and see all the reasons that they are taking this world in a direction that's opposite of God. But the question we have to ask is, how are we contributing to that? What is God asking of us? Where is God challenging us Where would God look at us and say, and you too, First Baptist Goodlettsville, I will not forget what you have done. Now, we can't forget that we're on the other side of the cross, on the other side of the resurrection. And so part of our sin, not part of it, right? That's what the song says, not in part, but the whole has been paid. The scripture also teaches that there is, when we move on to our future eternal state there will be judgment not whether we're going to heaven or not but there will be a reckoning and the thing that i don't want to know when i get to heaven it's not going to be listen your experience in heaven as we've said before is going to be unbelievable it's going to be better than you can ask or imagine it's going to be more than you can even think about but i don't want to have knowledge on my way there that what i'm doing here has defamed the reputation of my savior Or prevented people in need from asking what they need to ask or doing what they need to do to follow Him. He says to the nation of Israel, I know you look all around you and you think all these people have got it wrong. And guess what? You're right. But so do you. Here's what's interesting about Israel. Sometimes in the Bible you can tell more about what's not written than what is written. And what Amos did here is a very common formula of here are your charges and here are the punishments. But when prophets spoke, they would almost always say, God is speaking, here are the charges, here are the punishments, and then here is how he'll redeem you. A light will shine and you will return. People will return unto the Lord. Fathers will turn back to the Lord. Sons will turn to fathers. There's something. What's striking is, that's not here. And Amos basically says, for the nation of Israel, you're done. Your time as the spokesman for God is ending. God's spokesmen weren't ending. The southern kingdom went on for a couple of hundred more years. God saved a remnant. The New Testament would come along. Jesus, the church would rise up. But we need to also be aware that God doesn't need any of us to do the task that he's going to do. But it is our privilege to be a part of it. And Amos is one of those that I think as we look at over the next few weeks, it ought to stir in us some thoughts of, are we doing what God's called us to do? All right? I'm going to pray we'll be done, okay?